Today's show is brought to you by our new sponsor, Cog Network. Cog Network, geared for gain. Cog Network is hedge fund investing evolved. By owning Cog Network tokens, you get exposure to the hedge fund's gains. The hedge fund is comprised of algorithmically traded commodity futures and investment in hard assets related to energy. The first hard asset is partial ownership of a multi-million dollar solar farm that has a crypto mining operation attached. I mean, this is really something that both traditional and crypto investors can come together and participate in. So for traditional investors, they can get exposure to cutting edge blockchain technology in a framework that they're familiar with, a hedge fund, right? And crypto investors can get exposure to an actual security that bears dividends and includes non-crypto assets. So that's super cool. And just for full disclosure, Cog Network is a fully registered and regulated entity qualified by the SEC as a Reg D as well as a Reg S and has a 506C exemption. They've been working with lawmakers since 2017 to get this idea built out in a fully compliant way. Crypt Nation, if you guys are interested in learning more about a tokenized hedge fund, go visit www.cog.network. All right. What is up, all you good citizens of Crypt Nation? Thanks for tuning in today. Your host, Bryce Paul here, as always, uh, not joined by my co-host and my compadre today. Uh, he is out of the office. So I am joined today by a, by a good buddy, though. Nonetheless, Dave Weisberger, CEO and founder of a, a really awesome platform called Coin Routes. Dave, welcome to Crypto 101 Podcast, and thanks for uh, joining us today. Well, thanks for having me. And just to be clear, co-founder, interestingly enough, with my son, Ian Weisberger, whose technology uh, is at the core of Coin Routes and whose idea it was to actually build it. He dragged me from <laughs> being a dinosaur in the old markets into the world of crypto. And for that, I will always thank him. Amazing. No, that's that's uh, we, I, if I uh, I should have brought on your son as well. We could have done a founder series. But uh, yeah, let's just jump into that. That's like one of the most fascinating aspects uh, of everything going on in your world right now is that, you know, you're a you're a, a duo team with your son uh, building this platform and you come from uh, the traditional capital markets. So tell me a little bit. Uh, catch us up. What's your background in and what was it that really tipped you? Uh, tipped you off in, to become a crypto head like uh, all of us crazy well, guys over here. I'll try to be quick. I'm going to sum up years quickly. So I started in the, in the business in technology. I was a programmer who built the first program trading system on Wall Street, which got really interesting really quickly in 1987. You may have read about that crash that they all blame program trading on. So I kind of was in the middle of volatility from very early in my career. Black uh, Monday. In the next decade, in the 90s, I started the non-dollar program desk at a company called Solomon Brothers, which no longer exists. It was merged with it merged and then bought by Citigroup. But along the way, got very involved in statistical trading and quantitative trading. So at various points in my life, I've run electronic market making and statistical arbitrage uh, for what became Citigroup. I then ran a company called Lava Trading, which is very interesting. They were one of the first smart order routers uh, in the world and was probably the largest smart order routing company. Uh, and Citigroup bought them and asked me to fix it after they predictably broke it. Uh, when I left there in 2008, you might recall there were, when you read about it in the history books, there were some issues <laughs> in the global banking yeah. system in 2008. I went, to a, I, I went to a company called Two Sigma, which at the time was a relatively small quantitative hedge fund. And I went there with the idea of starting their wholesale market maker and building what became Two Sigma Securities. So I did that for the better part of five plus years, 
so almost six years. And that takes me to 2016, at which point I was in my non-compete year. I worked for a software company that got bought by a big conglomerate and didn't really want to be with a big conglomerate. And so I uh, negotiated my exit. When I negotiated my exit, my son, Ian, who's been a programmer on his, in his own right for quite some time, uh, he has experiences diverse as building genetic sequencing, big data applications, as well as fintech applications. And he was an early user of Bitcoin, had been following along with that for quite some time. And he said to me that the market was really fragmented and really needed mediation between all these exchanges. And there, were, there was all sorts of opportunity there. And when I looked into what he said, I realized he was right. And so we sat together in 2017, in the beginning of the year and throughout the year, and built or actually built a pipe and applied for patents for building what has become CoinRoutes, which is a system that allows people to trade on multiple markets simultaneously, knowledge from all the exchanges as well as market makers, and, and trade algorithmically uh, in order to get a better result. So if you want to buy 10 Bitcoin on CoinRoutes, you're going to generally get it at a better price than buying it in any individual exchange. And that's sort of how we got there. You know, the funny story is, is you know, you know, Ian's first involvement with uh, with this with, with Bitcoin was that uh, for use for buying IDs. You know, he was working at a young age, and so whatever he bought, you know, IDs with that. They were very turned out to be very expensive if you don't know what's happened to the price of Bitcoin over the last uh, decade or so. But it, it did make a lot of sense to me, and it didn't really take a lot to get me to to, to really buy in, being someone who's believed in 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 the value of hard money. Uh, you know, monetarist economics being mostly what used to be called libertarian, but today that that word has all sorts of weird connotations to it. But believing in limited government and individual freedom, etc. You know, my ethos is very similar to the Bitcoin community. So once exposed to it, it was a pretty natural fit. I, I really, really, really want to dive into just the last couple sentences that you put out there about your your philosophy that you have had for years um, about, you know, maybe it's closer to the Austrian school of economics, your belief in hard money, maybe private currencies and all that stuff. And I'm curious if you could say like what exactly about, because a lot of our listeners maybe are in the same boat where they haven't really dove too deep into what makes Bitcoin this, this truly hard money and, and something so unique and special. And what was it that, that really stuck out in the Bitcoin value proposition that said, hey, this fits my worldview uh, really, really well? And I think it's a great antidote for you know, the fiat regimes. Yeah, it's fascinating, actually. So I've been a gold bug in the sense of I bought when gold in the early parts of the 2000s was trading down around 400. I believe that it was the right thing to do. Uh, I'm a big believer in statistical anomalies and mean reversion. Uh, and I also saw what was happening with deficit spending and, and money supply globally. And to me, it just did not make any sense that you could print money without it going somewhere. And, and it occurred to me, and, and I, I kind of understand it, that people have completely gotten the notion of inflation wrong. And it's really a, a huge shell game being played on the general public. So when monetarists say that that inflation is a monetary phenomena, and, and yes, that is what the Austrian school would say, it is exactly what I believe is to be true. One would say, well, it clearly isn't. All these, these people now say, well, it's not because the consumer price index hasn't gone up while we've printed all this extra money, so clearly you're wrong. Well, the reality is, is 
it's translated itself into an interesting dichotomy. And it's something that I've known about and thought about for like literally a decade, even long before I had ever heard of Bitcoin, which is that there's two types of inflation. There's asset inflation, which is what we've had, asset prices exploding higher, and consumer inflation has been tame. Why? Because the more you can invest cheaply, the more you can value capital over labor. So you keep labor costs down, you externalize, you import all your goods from the place where it gets made the cheapest. And so you keep consumer inflation low, but your asset values go crazy to the upside. Now, that's more or less what's happened with money printing. The money has found its way into assets. Now, what has this caused socially? Well, what it's caused socially, the greatest explosion of wealth inequality that the world has ever seen. And it's not surprising because who owns assets? Well, the people who are previously wealthy just get wealthier. The expression that rich gets richer is is basically due to bipartisan policies of inflating the money supply, deficit spending, and keeping interest rates below a natural level, i.e. whatever the rate of inflation, including everything is, interest rates have been below that. And now they're zero, actually, or negative in many places in the world. So. I've been thinking this for a very, very long time. So why does Bitcoin appeal? Well, the reality is, is Bitcoin is still trading like an option. It is an option on its own acceptance. So the question really will be, will it get critical mass of acceptance globally? If the answer is yes, it will be worth hundreds of times what it's worth today. If the answer is no, it will probably go to zero or fade to the dustbin of history or maybe just stay a niche product. I don't think the answer is likely to be no. I think it's more likely to be yes, and I think it's going to be a process. And that's where I, I end up as bullish as people, you know, more famous Bitcoin bulls like, you know, Mark Yesko, and and I'm not going to try to pronounce his name. I'll just call him Pomp from Morgan <laughs> Creek, who, who talk about the need for trust. But if you look at the very simple bedrock is what makes good money. People often say, well, gold is a barber relic. Well, if you want to talk about real barbarous relic, how about seashells? Seashells were money and accepted fairly widespread for over a thousand years before you had gold or, and silver as monetary metals. The fact is money is whatever people are willing to use as a medium of exchange. And the characteristics of good money, things like you can't counterfeit it, things like it's durable, it will not go away, things like it's portable, it's divisible, it, you know, those are the sorts of qualities that make good money. And if you start thinking about it, Bitcoin has every single one of those. And so that makes it very interesting. It's not to say that you can't create another version of it or another crypto or another whatever, but it is very interesting because it has all of those things. We also have an aging population. Younger people who are playing, and by the way, I do play the, the odd online game, understand are perfectly happy with digital representations having value. So a world where digital representations gain having value is more and more intuitive as the population ages, combined with all the qualities of money, combined with an inability to manipulate the amount, there will only ever be 21 million Bitcoin, period, and no government can change that, make it a very attractive platform, if you will, basis of money. Now, does it have to be Bitcoin itself that transfers between the two to be money, or could it be sitting in wallets and being in a another layer like Lightning Network or something like that out on top of it? That's a technology problem, right? That can be solved. All of those things can be solved. But can it be a store of value 
that has a universal acceptance in the future? Absolutely. What would what is the global total monetary aggregates right now? Well, I think it's somewhere around ninety trillion dollars. What's the market cap of Bitcoin right now? It's less, well, less than two hundred billion dollars. So you can start doing the math of what would have to happen for if Bitcoin were the monetary solution for the world. Now, I think there's a long way to go to get there, and there are many intermediate steps. But it's very exciting to think about the fact that an innovation which has and checks all the boxes uh, is potentially out there. And we're still in the very, very early stages of that potential evolution. Man, there are so many things to unpack there. And that was just so well said. But I, I want to go back to this concept that you're talking about of almost Bitcoin as an option. Um, so, so finish this sentence for me. Uh, buying Bitcoin is like buying a far out of the money call option on blank. A far out of money, uh, out of the money call option on the future of money in the global economy as it evolves into an ever increasing digital form. Boom. That's awesome. Yeah. I, when I think of like, like in order for that to happen, it's really also buying some type of call option on a rising level of mistrust in governments and institutions worldwide. Would you also agree with that? (laughs) Not only do I agree with it, I would say that the current crisis. I I actually have thought about writing an article. I will eventually write it, uh, basically calling Bitcoin the financial phoenix, because Mm. it was born out of the 2008 financial crisis, where there was intense distrust of non-governmental institutions called banks. The 2020 crisis is causing enormous stress and highly likely to cause enormous stress in people's distrust of governments themselves in two different ways. Think about what the perfect storm for a new form of money, what would be required? Well, the two things that have to happen are people have to start distrusting what the central banks are doing, the government banks are doing in terms of currencies, right? I.e. rampant money printing. You know, we print more, we print more, we print more, and you have nothing better to do. And all the current countries are printing more, so there's no place else to turn. So that's thing number one. And that is check. That's exactly what's happening. Everybody's going to spend enough to allow their populations to recover. I'm not saying they shouldn't, by the way, because frankly, stopping the economy for three months is a very expensive proposition and is likely to result in a lot of monetary easing. But the second thing it's causing, and people haven't figured this out yet, is is essentially a retrenchment of the surveillance state with much better technology. What do you need to do to call, to enforce social distancing? Well, all sorts of things, tracking people's cell phones, seeing what's going on, mm-hmm. monitoring activity. It doesn't take a paranoid mm-hmm. person to realize that the greatest expansion in the surveillance state in the history of humanity is likely we're facing down the barrel of that right now. Right. Now, maybe it won't be quite so bad. Maybe it'll be like a little bit more than the Patriarch did. You know, what, what, what did that do? Well, that meant that instead of going to meet someone at the airport, uh, instead of going through to a plane, you could spend an hour and a half in security, have to, have to take your shoes off and all this other indignities that, you know, that we've been you know, subjected to where the statistics basically say it doesn't really do anything. Once you lock the cabin doors to the airplanes, pretty much none of that mattered, but it doesn't matter. You know, we still subjected ourselves to it because after all, 9-11, well, this is going to be like 
many, many 9-11s. And what's it going to do in terms of migration and people's ability to surveil and to make sure that, that, that you have diseases under control? Well, all of that will be used for unprecedented police powers. Now, where, where does that go? Well, it goes towards maybe cash, which can carry viruses, will get outlawed. So now all of a sudden, the economy, which in many places runs on cash for lots of reasons, now people need a, a ability to transact without it being quite so easily traced. Now, I'm not talking about it about AML or you know avoiding you know uh, anti-money laundering rules. I'm not talking about breaking the law, but there's still people do not want the government to know every single thing that they're doing. That's pretty clear. The ability for crypto to effectively serve that niche while still allowing for enough the basics, like you can't get into the system without uh, you know being able to tr- look for money laundering and criminal activity, that can be done. And so I do think that distrust in government where they're going and distrust in monetary policies are both being triggered in, in this particular environment. That's, that's, that's amazing. And kind of along the same lines um, of just kind of extending this call option on the mistrust of government and, you know, people, you know, options always have expirations as well. And that's what something that makes them so volatile um, how would we be able to think about, you know, a theta for for this out of the money call option? Like, what is the expiration before we start to say, hey, the value proposition for Bitcoin is actually, you know, not not as much because as time goes on, we realize it's not that needed. Or like, do you kind of understand what I'm saying? Like, how do we? When does this I, option I do, expire? But I think that, that- Theta being the time value or time decay of options for people who aren't familiar with with, with the Greeks and the option market uh, applies because there's a, de- a defined date. I think in the case of Bitcoin, it's really more momentum sort of deal. If the momentum okay, a little bit more fades dynamic. and it starts fading away. Yeah, I think that it's really interesting. You know, monetary systems go in epochs. I mean, it, it's just, it's almost like time-lapse photography to see it. When you think about it, in the history of the world, in 5,000 years of, of, of financial history, where you know, we went from seashells to you know, gold coins to the, the modern era, the reality is that it's only 50 years since we've had fiat money in the current instantiated form. 50 years. It's, 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 a, it's a blip. And so people are saying, well, in my life, this is all I've known. That really doesn't matter. I mean, these things can take a long time to work themselves out. And so it's not at all clear to me that there is an expiration date. Expiration will happen if another better technology comes along. I mean, you know, if you join the world of Star Trek, I mean, I don't know what the hell gold pressed latinum is, but in their, their <laughs> universe, it, it ended up there. Before that, it was like called credits. But some sort of immutable digitized form of value that's a scorekeeping is virtually baked in the cake. I mean, you can't find a sci-fi novel that doesn't have that at the core of what its future economy is going to be. Will that be Bitcoin? I don't know. But if it isn't, it's going to be something like it. And that's really the kind of point here. And it could take a lot of time to get there. It could be happening over the next decade. I think it's more the next decade where it starts to, to really assert itself. But, you know, don't be terribly surprised if things take too long. I'll give you an example of what I mean by this. In 1988, uh, I was in a, in a room with a bunch of other technologists 
uh, to testify in front of a, a group called the Brady Commission, which was formed by Congress to see how can we prevent the next stock market crash from happening. And so you have all these technologists. And remember, I built the very first program trading system. So arguably, I was one of the first ones to be looking at this. And every one of them to a person said that by within five years, all equity markets will be fully electronic, except for me. And I said, I looked at them and I said, well, the technology certainly exists for them to be fully electronic, but it isn't going to happen. It's going to take a lot longer. And they looked at me and they said, why? That doesn't make any sense. The technology already exists today. Why is it going to take more than five years? And I said, well, it's simple. Entrenched interests. People are not going to give up money if they don't have to. People who are on the New York Stock Exchange or the dealers, and I had all sorts of anecdotes I can tell you about why and how I came to this conclusion, they weren't going to give it up. Well, the truth is, it wasn't until the SEC passed something called Reg NMS in 2005 that the marketplace in the U.S. like for equities went fully electronic after that. So it took 20 years. Now, there was a lot of pressure on them to do that, and the market was electronifying all, the whole time. But it took 20 years for something that was inevitable and obviously inevitable in 1988 for it to happen. So, yes, I believe it's inevitable that we end up with a digital store of value. I believe it will have it will have the characteristics of Bitcoin, but do I think it can happen immediately just because the technology is there, or because this event series is is upon us? I, I believe there's a lot of entrenched interests that will fight against it happening, and it will happen slowly uh, over time. Do you have a friend who's interested in getting into cryptocurrency, but they don't know where to start building their portfolio? Well, we have the answer. It's called Copy Trader by eToro. With CopyTrader, you can automatically copy every trade of eToro's top crypto traders, just like myself or Bryce or Kevin, at the exact price point and in real time. No need to study up on markets or develop your own strategies. Simply just sign up and copy our trades. Any profits that we make, you do too. Proportional to your investment, of course. With eToro, you get access to the world's most popular cryptocurrencies with transparent trading fees all in one easy-to-use app. Copy the smart money with eToro. Join now at eToro.com slash crypto 101. Thank you. Nice. Very well said. And, and a lot of the, the, the things that we're talking about now are ways that I could kind of uh, be able to start to frame a valuation uh, framework, like a soft model around the long-term uh, potential and price of like really the long-term potential of Bitcoin and then is it overvalued or undervalued relative to that? But but are there any sort of quantifiable metrics that you like to look to um, to say, you know, Bitcoin is overvalued or undervalued related to this this benchmark or this pattern? Uh, maybe it's the price of mining, or maybe it's some type of uh, realized market cap that you like to look at to say that this is more of a fairer value currently uh, for the price I mean, of Bitcoin. The fact is, Bryce, I don't consider my Myself an expert on on these those sorts of things. Uh, I'll tell you that, that the stock to flow model that people talk about certainly has uh, it, it certainly makes the quantitative part of me st stand up and take notice because it's not just been accurate, but it actually makes intuitive sense. I think that looking mm -hmm. at the hash rates and acceptance rates, number of unique wallets, uh, overall take up in the economy, those all make sense in terms of intermediate values. Uh, its ability to be used generically across borders, you know, things like that decisions that happened recently, like, you know, a couple months ago when the Supreme Court of India said that cryptocurrency can't be illegal here. 
you know, that's almost a billion people that now who, who were very interested in it all of a sudden get exposed. That should be a huge price driver for Bitcoin. Right. And price barely but moved the in the short term off the back of that. It moved not at all. Now, yeah, why me... is that? There's all sorts yeah. of reasons why. There's all sorts of reasons why. And, and, you know, we can talk about what happens when you get into a crisis, but it happened in the backdrop of the Wuhan virus uh, starting its march to becoming a global pandemic. Mm. And what happens when you have a global pandemic and everyone's shut up in their houses and people are seeing their way of life threatened and their jobs threatened and people need to pull in money, you get very, very different cross currents. I mean, the mm. reality is, is the policy response to this crisis has been more bullish for the no Bitcoin than anything that's happened since 2008. Yet at the exact same time, you have hundreds of thousands of people, you have large pools of capital who need to raise cash because they are risk averse. I mean, I just did an interview the other day where I talked about it. It's sort of like the the two things that are, are, are operating in opposition to each other is you have need and you have conviction. So people who are bullish on the notion of Bitcoin as a alternative to fiat money their conviction is growing off the charts. People who look at Bitcoin as a censorship-resistant form of money, it's going off the charts. But those same people might need to raise cash. And when you need to raise cash, what do you sell? You sell whatever is liquid. And Bitcoin is many things, but it's very liquid relative to other things. Try to sell gold bars someday, and, I'll, and although there's a huge demand for it today, it's not easy. It could be done, but it's not simple. Try selling objects of art, you know, etc. So it really depends. Hey guys, TiVo here to tell you about the Ufi Video Lock, a smart lock, a 2K camera, and a doorbell all in one. That's right, three in one for triple the security. It's easy to install. All you need is a Phillips screwdriver, no drilling required. It gives you keyless entry, so no more fumbling your keys when you have your hands full coming back from the grocery store. No more worry about the kids losing a house key. No more worry about a guest losing the house key or forgetting the passcode on your door. And for Airbnbers, it's a no-brainer as you can change the passcode at will between renters. It has available fingerprint recognition and it has AI self-learning chips. So the more you use it, the more accurate it's going to be. You will have no anxiety with the battery charging. It is a rechargeable battery and it lasts around four months. But don't worry, when it's low, it'll give you plenty of weeks notice. And also, it always comes with a physical key as a backup. There's no monthly fee. Unlike other brands that charge you a monthly fee to get your backup recorded. They're always recorded locally and you will always have access. Customer support for the Eufy Video Lock is 24-7, so you don't have to worry about any issues you have, and it comes with an 18-month warranty. What I love about this product is it is truly all-in-one. With the three-in-one, you don't have to go out and buy multiple parts. It's all in this package with the Eufy Video Lock. So if you're interested in learning more, go on Amazon and search Eufy Video Lock. That's E-U-F-Y Video Lock or visit eufyofficial.com slash video lock. Again, that's E-U-F-Y Video Lock. Eufy Video Lock. Get complete control over your front door. Did you know a 2018 study showed half of prenatal vitamins tested had unacceptable levels of heavy metals? I'm Kat, mother of three and founder of Ritual. When I was four months pregnant, I couldn't find a prenatal I could trust, so I created my own. Ours is made traceable, third-party tested for heavy metals, and recently earned the Purity Award from the Clean Label Project. 
But don't just take my word for it. Get 25% off at virtual.com slash podcast. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Is the Bitcoin's liquidity, it's a liquid asset. And so it gets dumped overboard with everything else when people are selling the raised cash. So you're seeing those cross currents walk against each other. That's why I don't think you've seen the big moves that you might have seen when you realize there's trillions of dollars about to get printed. A trillion euros going to get printed. Governments are retrenching and trying to see what the hell their citizens are doing. These are all things that should be massively bullish. Add to that a billion people gaining access to, to own it and trade it. You would definitely think if you didn't know what else was going on, that the price would be closer to 15000 than 7000 Wow. Yeah. It makes me really think, well, then what will eventually unleash some of that, you know, that excess credit and capital being infused into the economy right now? Like at what point will that money start to see its way into, you know, trading volumes for crypto? And it, I don't know if it's as much a question as just, it's like a, a, a random thought, I guess. Um, I don't know. Did you have any thoughts on that? Oh, I have lots of thoughts. But the single most important thing, I'm reminded of an old TV show, (laughs) (laughs) which, by the way, if you tried to produce it today, would would be, I can't imagine the political correctness police, what they would say. There's an old TV show with David Carradine called Kung Fu. and, And his master would tell him, be patient, grasshopper. It was always preaching patience and, you know, various and sundry, you know, Eastern platitudes about patience. The reality is markets always take longer for meta themes than you expect them to. And there's an old expression, the markets can remain irrational longer than you can remain solvent. And there's a reason for all of that. Bottoms are formed as a process. V bottoms are rarely, rarely happen except at really ridiculous inflection points. Like a couple of Thursdays ago, there was an obvious V bottom. And and, and with all the, the, the leverage being flushed out of the system, I know we're going to get there, but you know that was a V bottom, but that doesn't really talk about bottoming as a process. Bottoms happen. And, and it's been said by many people, you know, Warren Buffett's famous for saying it all. He didn't invent it, you know, sell when others are, are greedy and, and buy when others are fearful. The reality is bottoms are formed when over a period of time, the sellers get exhausted and, and it, the, the asset has moved from weak to strong hands. And then without sellers, what happens? The fundamentals start coming in and people start buying. Uh, the notion of FOMO or fear of missing out is, is, is a very big deal in bull markets, and it tends to climb a what's called a wall of worry. So it's the fact that it hasn't moved crazy, I mean, I, I got very, very, very bullish on Bitcoin uh, right after that Thursday event, as it was in the four and five thousands, I was watching the policy responses. The last 2000, which is a big move, it's a 40% move up, is I think very relevant because some of that has happened uh, delinked from the equity markets, although people will keep t- saying things like it's very correlated to the S&P. And sure, for two or three weeks, it looks like it. But that's mostly because of the exogenous things that have gone on. As more institutions have gotten into Bitcoin, they've had more to sell when they needed to raise cash. So yes, I think it's going to take time. I think it is a process. But 
if you look at, at various historical examples, it shouldn't surprise you that this is what's going on. Yeah, you mentioned something uh, that I really do want to want to spend a, a good chunk of time covering because it was one of the most interesting things that had happened uh, in a really, really long time. You know, I've, I've been in the industry for half a decade and seen crashes and crumbles and recoveries and all sorts of different crazy pri- price action. And, you know, <laughs> I think it was it was March 11th or March 12th, depending on where in the world you live. And that that was a bloody Thursday. We saw about a 50 percent uh, price correction over the course of of, of 24 hours, uh, maybe even shorter than that, and a lot of that was driven by what people are thinking was this um, liquidation engine on Bitmex going crazy. And not to blame it on one exchange, um, it, it really seemed like it was just a waterfall of liquidations. But what the heck happened, and, and what, what's going on? Can you unpack that day for us? Yeah, I mean, look, it, you, you actually summarize it really well. A waterfall of liquidations is pretty much exactly what happened. I mean, you have to understand there's a reason this doesn't happen in stock markets anymore. And that's because in 1929, uh, the SEC, or not the SEC, the people, the precursors, realized that that's exactly what happened. Uh, anybody who thinks that that what's happening in Bitcoin today or some of these other markets, it's it's never happened before, should read a famous book uh, called Reminiscences of Raider by a, the pseudonym Edwin LeFay. It's uh, Jesse Livermore is, is was the, the the actual trader, and and it chronicles his stock trading from the late 1800s to the early 1900s. Now, people who never read this book or heard of it, listening to this podcast, are probably thinking. Who is this old guy telling me to read this old crap? Hey, hey, it's I've read it and I endorse funny. it as well. It's great. <laughs> it's, it, the fact is, is back then you were allowed to buy stock on margin that was 98% margin. So 50 times leverage. They were called, wave, you know, you know, they called them, you know, bucket they called shops. them all sorts of stuff. They called them bucket shops and all sorts of stuff. But you were able <laughs> to do that. And it worked great if you happen to buy on the way up. But if you were buying on the way down, you lost all your money pretty much every time. The thing is, back then, they didn't have technology to, in order to create you know, margin effects. So you just lost your money and you move on to the next position. The difference is in the modern version, which is actually a really interesting financial innovation that is used by the futures exchanges that do perpetuals outside the United States, is you have this mechanism where regardless of whatever your margin is, wherever your positions are, you will get liquidated as this price falls in real time, you know, based upon that amount of margin. Now, the real problem with that is only when there's an exogenous event or shock. So what do I mean by that? So imagine some event happens. Oh, I don't know, a global pandemic. And imagine (laughs) that stock markets, bond markets, every market is collapsing right? In, in either in price or yield space. And people have to sell because their funds are being liquidated. And so they have to sell their liquid assets. So there's real sellers happening in Bitcoin alongside of this. Well, the problem is once a selling cascade starts in a very levered marketplace, then that selling will intensify because now in addition to the original sellers who theoretically may not want to sell below 5,000, may not want to sell below 4,800 or whatever the number was at the time. Now you have sellers which are price insensitive. That's a very important phrase, price insensitive sellers. A liquidation engine which says I'm going to sell doesn't care what the price is. It says I need to sell. 
And the problem is sometimes there's not enough liquidity to handle those liquidations. The first time I ever saw this, I was sitting on a trading desk in October of 1987. The mm. October 87 crash where the entire stock market dropped 25% in one day. Consider that what we've seen, it, 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 it was three times worse than any of the worst days we've had this month. Why did it happen? With fundamentals that weren't close to as bad as what's happened in this past month. Why did it happen? Well, it happened for a simple reason. Billions of dollars of, of, of exposure were, were bought by pension funds and they were sold something called portfolio insurance. What was portfolio insurance? Portfolio insurance was a product that said the futures markets at any point in time have $100 million, $200 million, whatever the number is, some, num some amount of ability to sell uh, exposure and get yourself hedged. And so you pick a level and say, if it goes below this, sell my futures. Now, what happens if it's become so popular that you sell so much portfolio insurance that if the market were naturally to drop, say, 7%, that all of a sudden you have 10 days worth of volume to sell at that one instant in time? Well, think about it. It's sort of like one of those commercials where you have a door and you have people in a room and you yell fire in the, in the room and everyone all runs for the door at the same time. Well, they can't get out the door. But in this case, what you have is no liquidity. So the prices just go into free fall. And what you saw on that day was free fall. Now, the difference was back then, most trading was handled by specialists on the New York Stock Exchange and market makers in the OTC desk who had to answer a phone. I sat on a trading desk and watched traders yell at each other as their phone was ringing, saying, I'm not going to answer it. You answer it. The other trader said, no, they'll make me buy something. I'm, I already have too much risk. I can't buy anything. And let the damn phone ring off the hook. Specialists didn't execute trades. There was all sorts of stuff that went on to slow the market down, not in a good way. Now, in Bitcoin, in, on BitMEX, this is exactly what was happening. You had so much to sell and so much leverage and no liquidity to buy it. If you could pause the market and let people assess what was going on, it wouldn't have been so bad, but that's not how it works. It's a 24-7 real-time market. Frankly, if BitMEX didn't have a system problem, it might have gone to, to $1 very briefly, wow. but it might have gone all the way down. We've seen those flash crashes before, and that would have been a travesty. So whoever you know pulled the plug or <clears throat> had a system failure, I'm, I'm coughing because honestly, if I were sitting in, in the, the management suite of BitMEX, I would have yelled to pull the damn plug. I can't believe, I don't have any proof that they did that, but if so, it was smart. The reality is, as bad as it was, it probably could have been worse because markets need time to develop liquidity and price insensitive sellers don't care about the price. So it will sell down to crazy levels. Does something like that, I mean, th first off, you know, that is such an, an unbelievable analysis, uh, like a, a wonderful analysis. Um, of the of the entire situation that went on and really something that you know for for any layman or normal person just looking at these markets just these sorts of extrapolations that make perfect sense and you just you wouldn't be able to get to so thank you for for that analysis and one of the questions that really comes to mind in listening to that is like wow is bitcoin you know is there some sort of you know risk that is now heightened because we see that you know, it could be if it weren't for Arthur to pull the plug potentially 
that Bitcoin could go to zero. Like, is the market really that robust and that ready for prime time? Is it is some part of its value actually deteriorate deteriorated after that? And I'm I'm going to assume you're going to say no because you got extremely bullish after. <laughs> We had that event. So, exactly so talk me through this. Price. <laughs> yeah, I think it's exactly the opposite. The more that people understand how the mechanics of this stuff work, less likely you, you've seen leverage that was taken out of the system. I mean, some of it's come back, but not all of it. It's going to take a while for all of it to come back. I believe you'll have a more robust system. I believe you'll see other exchanges. You've already seen one and you'll see more come up with ideas of circuit breakers and way to slow down those sorts of liquidation events. I think, you know, innovation happens in response to bad actions. I, I don't want to go and talk mm, about them, good. but there have been spot crypto exchanges who have had issues where there were flash events. And you know what? In every one of those cases, the exchange came back more robust with protections built into investors. Is it perfect? No. One of the reasons I built coin routes was because we recognize that people who trade on one exchange at a time are often losing money. Why? Because the odds of any one single exchange being the best place to trade at a point in time non-existent. In equities, every exchange has to be at the same price. There's rules that force it. In a world, a 24-7 market like crypto, not only aren't there rules, but there probably never will be. So like we did analysis that showed that people who use our system trade somewhere in the neighborhood of 30 basis points cheaper than trading on a single exchange. Now, it turns out that only about 10 basis points of that is because smart routing and the rest of it is because of algorithms. But the point is we can add value. The fact that there are companies like us that are stepping into the breach to add value is what makes it more robust. I guarantee you that every futures exchange that competes for people's leveraged flow will be building things to make this less and less likely over time. And so, yes, it was a bad event. Yes, some people made a fortune, some people lost money. But you know what? How do people learn when they're kids not to put their hands in a fire? Well, they get burned. Hopefully, they didn't have to go to the hospital for that burn. But the reality is, is it's a teaching experience. And that's how markets learn. So, yeah, it was bad. And it, fine. But, you know, we move on and we understand what the risks are. And the smarter asset managers, and there are plenty of them that are in the crypto sphere, understood this to begin with, and they will probably win more mandates and they will probably have a, a larger share of the, of the value going forward. And the ones who took all that risk to goose their performance, well, you know, maybe they won't ever recover because after all, they were doing things that probably wasn't smart for their investors. So I believe, Bryce, that what happens is when there's a, when there's a catastrophe is we two things could happen. Either it proves that there's just something you can't fix. That's not the case here. Or it's an opportunity to learn and you make the market better. And I think that's what's happening here. That's really smart. Uh, I love I love that viewpoint as well. There's just so much good stuff that we're covering, um, and every everything that you say just continues to add uh, more questions in my mind, which is great. I love conversations like this where you know I, I've got an outline, but I'm hardly even going by it. Um, one of the things that you said is that all of this hardship and uh, you know events like that make the market stronger because it forces innovation and it forces new models. Um, something that just happened that, that popped across my trading desk the other day that I saw was that Binance is releasing an options platform whereby they are the only seller of options on their platform. So a very unique model. Deribit doesn't have anything like that. Any sort of derivative exchange 
has dual flow, right? You could find buyers and you could find uh, individual sellers. But what what do you make of in of a of a call like that, right? So Binance is really a leader in the space. Uh, they've been one of the most trustworthy exchanges. But to be the only seller on their platform, it, it, that's kind of unprecedented, is it not? I have nothing but respect for what CZ's built, but I think this one is going too far. I, I, the reality is, is that there's a, a a line that I don't think exchanges should cross in terms of conflict of interest, and depending on how this is built, it could create it could cross that line. Without seeing the details and knowing how it works, I don't really want to comment at length. But let me explain what I mean. When people match buyers and exchanges match buyers and sellers, they have no skin in the game. Who wins and who loses? People will therefore trust them. You can send them your order flow. You know that it's not giving up information. If that same exchange has a vested interest in the price going up or down at a point in time, and they have the ability to potentially cause, we'll call them glitches in the matching engine, that's a really bad, uh, very bad sort of market structure. It's the kind of thing where not only would it be illegal in any of the, the major markets that I know of, and I'm not just talking about but the U.S. I mean, the SEC, of course, would say no. The FCA in in London would say no. ESMA would say no in Europe. The Japanese financial authorities would 100% say no. There's no way in hell they would allow an exchange to have a vested interest in the market moving in a particular direction because they have too much power and too much information from all the customer orders that were sent to them. There's a long history of this dating back uh, with the New York Stock Exchange specialists in terms of you know, lots of, of, you know, there were lawsuits and all sorts of things for things that were far more tame than this. Now, that said, maybe they're building it as a market making platform that and there'll be a there'll be information barriers and whatnot. And maybe it will be done securely. I have the devils in the details, but on its face, it's a problematic structure, right? Because essentially it gives them uh, that conflict of interest. And even if they do everything right, there will still be people who won't trust it. it you know, it, it, and it's different than if you're going to talk about like, you know, uh, the way Alameda and F FTX work, because there it's still arm's length. Yes, you know, they have a market maker inside the system, but, but it's still arm's length, right? People can see the prices. It's really well disclosed. Now, maybe the Binance will say, listen, this is where we're making the price of an option. If you want to go to, uh, if you want to, if we're the best price, come to us. If not, go to Deribit and go with competing market makers. Maybe that's their justification for it. So maybe it'll work, which is why I don't really want to say it can't work without knowing the details. But on its face, it's it's probably going in the wrong direction. The right direction for people are exchanges that people can trust with their order flow and trust with their information that have no vested interest in which way the markets move. I think in general, that's a better market structure. But I could be persuaded that I'm wrong if I just am missing some of the details and I have not seen the details to know. So I, I can't phrase it as strongly as I might. I think that's really fair. Um, I, I definitely like that stance and um, you know, it's, it's just interesting to think about how, how the details really will unfold and which jurisdiction will allow something like that. Cause like you said, I mean, no matter where you, Singapore, I doubt would allow that. And I think that's not where they, no, no way. Right. And, and you know, Hong Kong, like well, maybe but, Hong you know, but, when I say not a chance, I say not a chance unless it's done in a way where the the risk taking entity that is selling the options is completely arm's length from the mm. 
the exchange that's doing the technology and can be do and that can be provably audit provably you know the, the case yeah. in that case you might be able to persuade a regulator this is the right way to do it it's entirely possible it could be that they're using technology to justify the implied volatility on the options not to get terribly you know uh, not to get very geeky about it but there might be methods that they're building that could be a uniquely innovative solution to the problem that I'm presenting but okay. without knowing what those are right. I'm going to start from the perspective of I'm a skeptic prove me wrong rather right. than Ooh, that's a cool idea no that makes a lot of sense I really like that um, and and I guess the last thing is you know what else has been occupying your mind these days what else are you thinking about um, you know, obviously everybody's quarantined right now and this could just be, you know, a, maybe a book you're reading or something completely non-crypto related or some interesting theory you're developing. What, what have you been thinking about these days? You know, it, it's, it's fascinating because being in this space at this time in history, it feels to me like there is a, a serious inflection point. I, I'm a big student of history. I've seen, you know, I've lived a long time, I suppose, in this room. I mean, obviously, I'm not that old, but the, the reality <laughs> is that, you know, I'm in my 50s. I'm, I'm not, you know, I'm not even in the risk population for the pandemic, really. But the, the truth is that I've seen a lot in the financial markets, and I understand what's going on. I think that the the modern monetary theory and what's actually been happening has been is so fascinating. And I wonder if this pandemic isn't going to bring many of the issues to a head. Like I've been talking for years about this notion of asset price inflation causing the wealth inequality that so many political movements think are coming from a different source. I mean, they blame the people, the rich, right? You know, nothing makes me angrier. If you live in New York City and you make $350,000 a year to be called rich, you're laughing. It's just, are you kidding me? I mean, the, the notion of the 1% being defined as people who make $350,000 a year is insane because 1% of wealth is somewhere around $9 million in net worth. But you can't go from $350,000 salary to $9 million in wealth. You literally can't get there. So the reason for this is that you need to have pre-existing assets in order to have been participating in asset inflation, or you need to build your own company. And have that right. to get you over the guidelines. So I wonder in a world where we're going to continue to inflate and may potentially cause asset hyperinflation. Maybe it may not be hyperinflation the way people are thinking. It could just be that people look at the market falling and they're, they're surprised to see the market rallying with the death toll increasing. I'm not surprised. And I'll tell you absolute truth. I bought put options in January because I saw that this crisis was happening. Now, I didn't see because I'm a brilliant person. I follow people like 2-Bit Idiot, Ryan Selkis from Masari and others <laughs> who laid it out pretty well. And it was pretty obvious what was going to happen. So, But I sold them all. Uh, I didn't sell them at the exact bottom of the market, but I, I realized what was going to happen. Because as you start printing money, the fact is money is dollars are the denominator for stocks. So it's not going to surprise anyone. If you keep printing money, eventually the price of stocks is going to go up. Not because it deserves to in the sense of what money is worth, you know, before this all happened, but because it's a denominator. Now, that will create even more. So in a world where we're, we're hurting the real economy of people, right, absolutely hurting them, 
hurting their job prospects, getting rid of, you know, causing waves of bankruptcies in small businesses. At the same time, they were unleashing a tsunami of new money, which will do even more to create wealth inequality. Uh, I think you could see some really interesting political movements out of this. My question is, does that movement get hijacked by, you know, by people who are attacking it the wrong way, right? By redistribution of income or stuff like that, which will absolutely not work. Or will that get leveraged by the Bitcoin community, the crypto community and people in terms of hard money in, into where we really want it to go? Now, obviously, I hope that that's the way that it goes. I don't know, but that's what I'm spending my time thinking about. Wow. No, that, I mean, I feel like uh, everything that you said just resonated so, so deeply with me. This is, I mean, all the stuff that I spend my days researching. Um, thank you just so much for coming on. Uh, well, I, I, I do want to say one other thing, Bryce, because people are yeah, please. Think sitting here like the thinker thinking about this stuff. The one other thing that's happened from this pandemic is, is and this is going to appeal to some of your audience, maybe not to a lot is I was one of those people who was very, very unhappy in 2009 when they banned online poker in America. I had won my seat to the World Series of Poker for five successive years, wow. played a lot of online poker, made the money in a lot of big tournaments. Uh, and then they stopped. And with a job, I never really had time and I more or less stopped playing poker. Well, the one happy side effect of this is in New Jersey, at least, uh, Online poker is, if not back all the way, is getting back. And so at least I have a pleasant diversion. So I'm not reading a lot of books because I do have free time. If I have a five, six hour block, I have a poker tournament to play. And so that's <laughs> that one of the good things that's happened. Awesome. Outside of the US, no one will get that. But I had to flip that in there because you did ask me that. <laughs> no, thank you for sharing. No, I always like to get a little bit of personal color on, on all the people that come on. It's, it's just fun to see how uh, people are all connected all around the world. Yep, understood. So, you know, a little bit about me. In addition to crypto, uh, you know, my my one call it vice or hobby has always been playing poker, and this this uh, this is allowing me to to get back into the game, as it were. <laughs> awesome. Well, uh, I hope uh, if any of you guys out there who are listening play online poker, uh, go check out uh, Dave Weisberger and uh, you know, uh, on Twitter. That's the beauty of it. <laughs> what was that? <laughs> We all use pseudonyms. Believe me, I don't use my real name because they <laughs> you have an <laughs> All right, everybody. Thanks for tuning in. We'll catch you next week. mealtime inspiration, it's worth Shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make Shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth Shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make Shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply.